Hello, welcome back. I'm Ryan McLeod, this is Creative Chit Chat and this is episode number 52. Um, this week I've got Hazel White, um, who I'm sure a few of you in Dundee will know. Um, Hazel has worked at a few uh, different educational institutes across her career and that's where I first met her um, at DJ CAD. Um, she taught me on the undergrad course I did and then she taught, well she was leading the, the Masters of Design programme um, when I did it as well. Um, so I know Hazel quite well. And she now, after leaving DJ CAD, um, started a service design agency with Mike Press called Open Change. Um, and they're, I mean, they're doing some amazing work with big organisations um, like City Council, um, Scottish Government, uh, NHS, um, loads of different bodies um, using service design to sort of embed good practice in these organisations and sort of design thinking and engaging users um, and sort of planning out the future and sort of creating exciting projects off the back of it. Um, I think the work they're doing is really valuable. Um, it's great to see that sort of way of thinking and sort of design thinking being embedded in, in bigger organisations. I think it's something that really needs to happen. Um, yeah, and it's really important just to be engaging the people who are out there using those services because um, they are the people who are directly affected. And, and the more we can get people thinking like that, the better, I think. Um, so yeah, we obviously cover that and then cover how um, Hazel sort of came across service design as well, which I think she's got a really refreshing perspective on how she sort of learned as much from the, the students that she taught um, as she taught them. Um, I think it's a kind of it puts on its head a bit, but it's a quite a refreshing look at how it, and it, 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 that comes across and. and um, and another really sort of poignant point that was made was about sort of pivots and about knowing when it's time to change and not getting too comfortable. I think it's something that everyone can be guilty of, myself included. And sometimes we just need to give ourselves a shake and really reevaluate where we are and not get stuck in that rut. Um, before we dive straight into the episode, um, I've just got one thing to plug and that's a brand new, well not brand new, it's been going I think since about the start of the year or maybe just the end of last year. Um, it's a new podcast that's launched in Dundee and it's been run by Ali McGill and it's called Never Settle. Uh, this week he had on John Alexander who is head of Dundee City Council. Uh, he's only 29. Um, he's got a really sort of refreshing perspective on sort of politics in general, I suppose. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this week's episode. I'd, I'd highly recommend you go and check it out. Um, and I think there's, there's about six episodes out now, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah, definitely worth a listen. It's great to hear new podcasts coming out, coming up. I think the more we can get running Dundee, the more knowledge we can share the better we can all get at it, the more we can learn. Um, yeah, it's all for the better. I'll put the link in the show notes to that. Um, and to plug again, if you don't know, um, go and check out The Beans. Those guys are, are churning out the episodes, two a week, um, a mini-sode and an episode. And they're fantastic. They're just sort of random chats on random subjects. Um, I've done a few mini-sodes with the guys and they were really enjoyable. So yeah, go and check out Never Settle and check out The Beans, um, available at all good podcast platforms, but also in the show notes. And I suppose on another podcast-related note, um, if anyone is out there and they're thinking, well, maybe I should start a, a podcast, or maybe I fancy, just drop me a line. We can have a chat, um, grab a coffee or whatever. Um, I'm always up for talking to people about it. Um yeah, I mean, there's a the whole bunch of things I wish I'd known before I started, um, a whole bunch of things I've learned over this last year. So if you are thinking about it, 
I'd encourage you to do it and encourage you to, to have a chat. Um, and I know there's there's a bunch of other people out there doing it who would also be up for having a chat about it. So yeah, just reach out. Um, you can get me, it's creativechitchatdundee at gmail.com um, or on Twitter, which is at cccdundee um, or on Instagram. You can message on Instagram, apparently, um, at cccdundee. And again, well, they're the best places to keep up to date with the podcast. So I think I've rambled on for long enough. Um, let's get into it. So this is episode number 52 and this is with Hazel White. So I first came to live in Dundee nearly 30 years ago as an art student. Um, I got into Duncan and Jordanson um, College of Art Study and I was a mature student because I'd already done a degree right. um, at Edinburgh University. I left school really early. I left school at 16. Um, went straight to university. I did an ordinary degree at Edinburgh, English, history various other subjects and graduated when I was 19. Um, then I worked for five years and then I decided to go back and do what I'd always really wanted to do, which was go to art college. So why didn't you do that in the first place? Um, I just wanted to get away. I was brought up in Kirkubri, which is a you know a really small place, 3,000 people. It felt like the world was happening everywhere else and I wasn't part of it and I just wanted to join the world. Um, so the, if I drew... If I was going to go to art college, I would have had to stay on to do a portfolio at school. And I thought I could probably get into university. And it was, I mean, which was a bit arrogant because I actually wasn't, you know, the smartest in my year at school. And at that time, not that many people went to university. But I um, just set my heart on it. I thought that's what I'm going to do. Um, and English was my best subject at school. So I applied to do that. It was years and years later that I... Um, well, no, it was not. It was around about the same time that I was doing my final bit of application. Um, it was years and years later. The significance of it applied to me. I've, I was able to see the reference that the school had written for me. Um, and the deputy headmaster had put on my reference to Edinburgh University. Hazel would benefit from another year at school, but I doubt the school would. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of set the tone for things for me because I used to think, you know, there's all these people giving advice on people's lives that actually have no idea of what kind of life you're going to lead or what the possibilities are. And it made me realise quite an early stage that actually to take advice from people who were nothing like you with a big pinch of salt, you know, and to, to seek out the people whose advice you would take um, as people that you admired and, you know, shared the same values. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was kind of important. Okay, so you went back to, to art school. I went back to art school, and again, it was one of these things that are just kind of serendipitous in life, um, because I was working um, in Edinburgh at the time. I'd saved up enough money for a deposit on a flat, and uh, I was thinking, okay, this is what I'll do, because it was the 1980s, and you know everybody was doing that sort of thing. And then I got pneumonia, and um, I was off work for five weeks, and I was really quite poorly, and it kind of makes you think about what are you going to do. And I'd actually had to go back to my parents because I couldn't look after myself. Um, and so I started drawing again and I thought, actually, this is what I want to do. Um, so I went back to work and I handed in my notice. And I knew I wouldn't get a grant because I'd already done a degree. And I thought, well, the money that I've saved up for a deposit um, on a flat will see me through my first year and we'll just take it from there. And that's what I did. So what exactly did you study at art school? Um, well, I didn't know what I wanted to study when I got there. And I went with a really narrow view of what art school was about. My eldest sister had been to Duncan of Jordanston and done drawing and painting. Um, 
And in my kind of naive view of the world, I thought, well, there's you know, drawing and painting or there's graphic design. <laughs> and, you know, um, I didn't really know about anything else. So I did the, the general course. Um, and I loved that. I loved every day of going in and just thinking, this is what I get to do. <laughs> you know, I get to, you know, work with materials and experiment and, you know, try things out. And that kind of set me apart slightly from some people who'd come straight from school where it was just a continuation, here is what I have to do. I knew what the alternative was, you know, of having to get up and go out to work. Um, so this seemed like an absolute luxury. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, um, but we went on rotation and we went to see different departments. And when I saw the jewellery department, when I saw the gas torches, <laughs> I thought that's the one for me. And it was that thing about making things, you know, about actually starting from materials and making things from scratch. Um, it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't that I particularly liked jewellery. <laughs> it was the thing about actually constructing and making things. It's, it's funny how those when you go through a journey and you, you the things that attract you, um, they're never necessarily like career driven. Like I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, they were thinking about career paths mm -hmm. and then they were thinking, oh, maybe I'd quite like to be a vet. And then someone said, yeah, but you've got to stick your hand up cow's bums. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that, that could then dissuade <clears throat> you from an entire profession, yeah. no matter yeah. of what, if there's going to be a demand for vets in the next 10 years and if it could be a yeah. really sort of amazing career path. Yeah. Um, it's funny how th these little tiny decisions affect your life massively. Uh, absolutely. And it wasn't that I was thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, go and set up a jewellery studio. Um, on the west coast of Scotland and lead a solitary life making earrings or whatever. That was never part of the vision. It was just like a visceral attraction to making stuff. And, you know, you've kind of got to like the material that you're working with. I mean, I dabbled in, because you could do a, a subsidiary subject, I think it was called at that time. And I started doing ceramics and clay just didn't do it for me. <laughs> I liked metal because it's really hard and because it does what it you know, you put it in a position and it stays there. And, you know, I liked all the kind of techniques and I, I, can't, I like the technical aspects of it. I mean, when I was at college um, with Brian, the technician, we set up an aluminium anodizer, you know, just from reading in books. And Brian got hold of a, an, a um, direct current battery from a HGV lorry and we set, set up this aluminium anodizer and, uh, from scratch. And it was great. It was brilliant. And just that possibility that you could just think of things and then make them was just, that's what attracted me to it. Yeah. So what happened to, you, you've gone through art school, yep. and then where did you go from there? Well, again, it was one of those, uh, be careful who you ask for advice. Um, I, deci I decided I wanted to go to the Royal College of Art. Again, this is a thing kind of connected to Dundee slightly. I, Dundee was a very different place 30 years ago, um, and it didn't necessarily hold people here in the way that it does now. You know, And now it seems like a place like, let's stay here because it's a really creative place. Dundee, um, yeah, was was different 30 years ago, um, kind of post-industrial, etc. And I'd worked all the time I was here because I didn't get a grant. I worked in what was um, called Raffles. It was a, an Italian restaurant in Perth Road, is now Breeze. And I worked there from the day I started at Art College till the day I left because I needed the money. And I got four square meals <laughs> at the end of my shift there. And I used to look out the window um, of raffles when I was working in the evening shift and I would see the sleeper leave for London and just used to wish I could be on that sleeper. Um, there's a bit of a pattern here of wanting to get away from somewhere and go somewhere bigger. And so I decided that I wanted to go to London and I wanted to go to the Royal College of Art. But it seemed so, again, it seemed quite arrogant to want to do that because few people got to do that. And there is this 
a Scottish thing of, you know, um, being no better than you ought to be and, you know, that actually if you say I want to do this, it's, um, yeah, you're being arrogant in some sort of way. But once I'd said, I mean, somebody asked me actually in the pub at East, well, in the pub, what are you going to do when you leave um, college? And I said, I'm going to go, going to, go to the Royal College of Art. Um, and once I'd said it out loud, <laughs> then I had to kind of go and make it happen. And uh, But when I'd said to the course leader of the course that that's what I wanted to do, um, that I wanted to apply for the Royal College of Art, and would he write me a reference? And he said, oh, don't bother, you won't get in. <laughs> So, of course, that made me even more determined to go. And, uh, of course, I applied and I got in. Um, so there's a bit of a pattern of doing that in my life. If somebody says that you can't do something, I just it just makes me all the more determined to do it. Yeah. yeah. So how did you find that experience then moving down to London? What was it for, for a year, two years? Two years. Two years. I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I didn't know London particularly well. And um, so I was, you know, there was a bit of anxiety about it. But it was fantastic. Um, again, I got a job waitressing as soon as I got there. So there was this other part of life going on where you were getting to meet people who weren't um, involved in creative things. But I just loved, again, it was this thing of being in a place and thinking, this is what I get to do. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And although I was in the goldsmithing, silversmithing, metalwork and jewellery department, as it's catchily titled, um, I spent an awful lot of time in photography because I'd become more interested in how you present jewellery or jewellery-type objects. And <coughs> again, this was... You, know, you would do all this stuff in Photoshop now, but at the time I was, I was making things um, that could then be actually glued onto the body and then photographed, but I was processing them all using, you know, weight photography techniques. And so I spent a lot of time in photography, but it was interesting being in those conversations about how people read images as well. So yeah, I absolutely loved it and I fully intended to stay in London and never leave. Um, but again, when, <laughs> when I graduated, um, I won the class, the, the prize that the department could give up, give out, which was called the Bakery Prize, and I asked the, the professor of the department why I'd got it. And he said, oh, we just get, he said, it's the only prize that we can give out that's not you know, judged by another, by Selfridges or whoever the sponsor is. He said, we give it out to the person who doesn't do what they're told to do. Um, and he said, do bear in mind the sort of work that you're doing, because it was mainly photography, was the outputs of what I was doing, rather than saleable jewellery objects. He said, do bear in mind that you won't get a job doing what you're doing. So, of course, I was the first person in my year who got a job, um, because it's one of those things that actually, you know, people don't know what other people's lives are going to be. Um, so I went... Instead of staying in London as I'd, as I'd intended, I moved to Sheffield where I got a job um, lecturing in the silversmithing, well, metalwork and jewellery department at Sheffield. What, why did you take that job then? That seems like a, a, a big leap from where you were, um, doing a lot of photography and not a lot of jewellery, yeah. to then to go and teach. Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess it was for security. Yeah, and it was one of those things. And again, that's kind of life lesson just because, and you know, because you're, you're flattered because you get the job. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean to say you should necessarily do it, but, you know, it was a steady salary and it was a two-year contract. And there was, and it was so, I mean, it was so different from what I did because it was very, um, the design subjects at Sheffield were very industrial. So you had um, 
yeah, packaging design, um, industrial design, design and applied technology, and metalwork and jewelry. So you know, really kind of hard-edged design subjects. But again, that was kind of challenging. You know, it was interesting because within my first couple of weeks there, I had to design an object and make all the tooling for it and work out all the processes that would lead 120 undergraduate students who just started through all the health and safety processes in three different 3D design workshops. Um, and, you know, timetable all the staff for that as well. And it was just such a baptism of fire, but it's kind of those challenges that you learn most from. Mm. I stayed too long. I was there for nine years. And um, that's one of those things you get into the security of something and you begin to think that's what it is you do. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel like that's your life, right? Okay, so this is what I do. I'm a lecturer. Um, yeah. And So how do you define that point at which it's long enough? What's, what should be the transition where you, you start to realise or what should be the factors that you should start to think this is not right for me anymore. When you stop enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, when you stop enjoying it or it's keeping you awake at night. Um, you know, if you're spending time... Like, I mean, I, I'm, I have very leaky boundaries between work and home life because if I'm... You know, if you love your work, you just do it all the time, you know. And whether that's a good or a bad thing, that's how my life is. Um, and if you're doing it because you love it, you know, during times when, you know, other people might be watching TV or whatever, I think that's fine. Um, but if it's actually you're doing that because you have to or because it's, in, you know, or it's encroaching into your downtime in a bad way, then it's probably time to stop doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So what, what was the next step from there then? Well, we moved up to Scotland. Um, didn't intend to move back to Scotland. Um, had no, yeah, I was very happy. Um, Sheffield's a fantastic place to live and kind of has parallels in its, you know, being a post-industrial economy that has revitalised itself, so parallels to Dundee. Um, had no intention of coming back to Scotland but Mike got a job in Aberdeen and I got a job back in the jewellery department where I started off <laughs> <laughs> covering somebody's maternity leave at Duncan & Jordanson. So that's how I ended up back in Dundee. And then, I mean, you ended up at Duncan & Jordanson for quite Quite a long time after that. <laughs> for another stint that was probably longer than it should have been, for 10 years. And uh, I came in, to, as I said, to cover uh, maternity leave in the jewellery department, but I got asked um, to cover design studies for um, interactive media, as it was called then, I think, yeah. and mm. uh, product design, which wasn't particularly an area of expertise, but I always, I do believe that you learn things best by teaching them. <laughs> And uh, so I ended up teaching that and teaching on the master's course. And again, that wasn't my area of expertise, but it was really interesting. Um, so I moved out of jewellery. I just did, I can't remember, I think I did a term in the jewellery department and then moved more into sort of design, both at master's and at undergraduate level. Because, I mean, that's where we first met. Yeah. You taught me on that, the, yeah. the design studies course, which was... From what I remember, it was all about design thinking um, and how you apply techniques to to sort of generate ideas and apply them to new sort of areas and things like that, which at that time was probably more of an emerging part of design. Yeah, yeah, and it was, and it was something that I was learning about and I thought was really interesting and really relevant. And also that thing about understanding 
people's motivations for, you know, why they behave in certain ways. Um, you know, because I'd come from a very craft background in design, you know, where it's about materials and what you can do with materials. But I became interested in actually why people wear stuff and what that says about them. And so in a more general design um, area, that's all about people's behaviours and motivations and why they want products or what, what they're trying to do when they're interacting with things. So that became something that I thought was really key you know, because you can't add that on later. Mm-hmm. You know, let's design something and then work out why people might want it. It's got to be up there at the beginning of a design process. Yeah, and, and to me it feels like that that thinking part of it needs to be there at the sort of core of, of any designer. Yeah. Um, no matter what, what your end product is or yeah. what your materials are working on or whatever, but that thought process has to be there at the at the start. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah... It, and and then that expands out into everything that's not just design. You know, that actually is sitting down. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, and where are we trying to go? Um, you know, or what? You know, behaviour change or change in the environment or whatever. What is it that we're actually trying to do? Um, and hold on to that. And that well, that might change. You know, as you observe people or talk to people or find out um, what people are doing at the moment or what they want to do in the future. But. You need to understand that before you start designing things, otherwise you design the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you sort of you moved over to the, the Masters of Design, is that right? That's right. Um, again, it was another course that I, I took. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, coming out of that, that course, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of amazing designers yeah. and also a lot of people who've set up their own businesses. Yeah. Um, but why, why do you think that that course was was so effective i think because it brought in those that different way of looking at things when i it used to be that a master's course in design was kind of like a year's extra year to you know get your shit together um you know like i've done four years of a, an undergraduate degree now what am i going to do to kind of reposition myself um, in the world, whether it's to take your final project and refine it or think of a marketing plan for it or whatever. And um, that was sort of some of the motivations that I went into that master's. Yeah. It was a very comfortable step. Yeah. And instead of stepping out into the world, just to kind of refine your thinking a bit, which is fine, which is okay. But I think you could do more than that. And I think an undergraduate degree is about learning about the subject you're in and exploring what you're doing. What you come out with it at the end of it is not necessarily the product that's going to go into the world. It's, you know, you've learned about things through making that product or doing that project that you've done. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to spend your next five years trying to market that. Um, so what is that transition phase? And so it was helping people transition into the next phase. And a lot of it became about how do you understand that whole process of design, about understanding users, about how you communicate with people, because so many, well, everything really in design is about communicating with lots of different people. You know, whether, I mean, from your master's project where you were looking at how people um, who don't have um, communication skills can communicate, and that involved you talking to experts in augmented communication, talking to people who would be the end users of the things you were designing, talking to experts in all different parts of the field. And that's not... an a natural thing for everybody to do. So building confidence in doing that so that you can go and um, get the right information from people um, and you don't shy away from doing that. You don't shy away from doing good research. 
um, and then how to take ideas through and prototype them and not always get it right. Um, and then how to actually explain to somebody what it is you've done and why it has value, um, I think is really, really important. And I think that's what that course was about, is about helping people through those journeys. And one of the one of the best bits, one of the things I really remember really, really well, and I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this, is Jamie, who was in your year, um, presenting back some work that he'd done um, midway through the course and actually saying, it's not actually working out, it's not going where I thought it was going to do and I've made some assumptions here that weren't right. Um, and just being very, very honest about that and then repositioning and moving his project forward. And that isn't traditionally really how design's been taught. It's been like, we'll go to crit, um, you'll present your stuff, um, your lecturers will slag it off and you'll defend what it is and nobody's listening to each other. You know, it become, it's, a kind of, it's a confrontational thing, whereas it should be about conversations and critical friends and being able to recognise when you've gone down a path and you've learned a lot, but actually it's not quite the right path and you need to step back and then move forward again. And... I think that course was really good for people to be able to to explore things in a safe environment mm -hmm. and make mistakes and learn from them and then move forward. Yeah, and I think it, for me, it sort of helped me develop my own personal design process mm -hmm. and sort of consider what are the, the, the sort of fundamental steps that you need to go through in, in any project. And yeah. you could apply that across that. So it, I think it gave me that time to explore that before I then went out to get to get a job, Yeah, um, which I think was really, really valuable. Yeah. Yes, just picking up on that, though, another great thing, it was bringing people in who were already working in industry. And I can remember you coming back, actually, and talking to the students after you'd um, been working for maybe a year, maybe two years um, in Glasgow and sitting in that same seat that Jamie had previously sat in and explaining what your day was like <laughs> to the students. And, you know, saying that you might be doing three deadlines in a day and, you know, this would, you know, this would be your process for each one. And then just looking at you absolutely slack-jawed because the pace of things when you're a student is so slow compared to when you're actually working in industry. You know, you just have to work so fast um, because time is money. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really, really good lesson and a really good eye-opener for them because it was somebody who'd been in their position, you know, 18 months, two years earlier, um, had a real resonance for them. So I think that was another strength, actually, was having people who were actually working in the field coming back to say, this is what it's like out there. Mm -hmm. And sort of a lot of the things we've been we've been talking about there, like the fundamentals of that and the process and, and sort of prototyping mm. aspects and sort of um, failing fast yeah. and, and sort of reconsidering how a traditional design process is led. Um, a lot of those elements feed into what is now known as service design. Yeah. Um, so that that sort of the way I see it is that sort of formulates the next part of your your journey. Yeah. Um, so how I mean. At what point did you become aware of service design and how did that sort of transition its way in the same way teaching came into your journey? How, yeah. how does service design sort of take hold of you? I suppose the actual word service design um, came a little bit later than understanding the kind of idea of it. When I was on the master's course, um, John Thackra had written this book um, in the bubble designing in a complex world. And he did a talk at Robert Gordon's in Aberdeen that all the master's students went up to, to listen. And his point was that there was um, lots of people in the world with real problems that needed solving and lots of designers sitting in studios solving problems that didn't. And actually, if you got those two 
lots of people together, you could actually affect change. Um, and that had a huge resonance for me. And then also we had Colin Burns, who used to be studio head of Ideal London, um, came once a year actually, probably for the seven years I ran the master's course and did user-centered design with the, with the students. And it was just really, really inspirational. And he'd been part of a movement which is called Transformation Design. They wrote a paper in 1996 um, looking at what the role design could have in the world rather than just the making of objects. And that was also... Um, the Design Council awarded the Designer of the Year to um, someone who wasn't a designer to do with the design of hospitals and schools. And there was a big outcry amongst the design community. Um, it was Hilary Cottam who won the prize. Because how can somebody who's not a designer win a design prize? And I just thought, well, why not? <laughs> why not? You know, it's not just about, you know, being able to cairn, um, you know, or sand blue foam nicely. It's about, you know, how do you actually make a change in the world? So that was really seminal to me. And then the change, so that was the change about what the role of design could be. But the actual term service design was when Lauren Curry was doing the course and she was researching into service design. So it was learning through her. And that's kind of always been a pattern for me is you learn an awful lot from what your students are doing and reading and saying because they're really trying to navigate through and create a new world, you know, whereas I'm kind of part of an old world. Um, so you can learn, yeah, you learn an awful lot from them. So the term service design was probably first introduced to me by, by Lauren Curry. And when do you think you started sort of practising that? I think to a certain extent we were already doing it, but calling it something different. We when we changed the name of the Master of Design course um, to Design for Services, that was conscious rather than calling it service design because I suppose in my head service design is a full end-to-end process, you know, where you're finding out what um, user needs are, your prototype and things, right to the delivery point. And to a certain extent, um, on a master's course, you couldn't do all of that. Um, you know, and a lot, you know, and it involves digital solutions, it involves all sorts of different um, competencies that in a one year's master's course, you know, you're not going to cover all of that. But actually design for services, so how do you design to work with people who are providing services? So we, we do aspects of it, but, you know, not claim that, you know, we could, you know, run the HMRC by the end of it. Um, so that was the reason for calling it that. Um, but now I'm kind of less bothered about what you call service design um, because it's, it's basically using those kind of creative techniques and methods and mindset in helping people do their work better for the people that are using their end products or delivering their end services. Mm-hmm. So you obviously decided that at some point that that you wanted out of the, the world of, of education and wanted to start your own practice. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested to find out what, what drove that. Um, and again, actually, interestingly, how how late that was in relative to, to you saying that you generally yeah. stuck around for too long. Yeah. So how many years or months were you, should you have done that before and just gone and set up your own thing? I don't know, it's funny because I look back on it and actually when I set up Open Change at Company's House, I'd actually done it a couple of years before I left the university. I'd kind of forgotten that. <laughs> so I was obviously, I obviously in the back of my mind had an escape plan. And... Um, 
But the thing was, I didn't know enough to do it. You know, I was learning about service design. I was teaching, so I probably couldn't have set up the business successfully much earlier because I didn't have the skills and knowledge to do it. In terms of running a business, I'd forgotten how much I liked running a business because in between university and going to art college, I worked for Pizza Land, which is like you know, Pizza Express or whatever. Um, I'd waitressed for them when I was at Edinburgh University, went on to their management training scheme. By the time I was 21, I was running restaurants that were in the 1980s, turning over £1.2 million, you know, managing all the staff, the stock, etc., etc. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed all the different aspects of that. I enjoyed the kind of um, the having to get the money in. You know, and figuring out how you got the money in and the sales, etc. Um, and it wasn't until I went back to running a business I realised how much I actually like that. And I like the kind of, well, I don't know whether we're going to get paid this month or not. You know, it's actually, if we don't do the work, we're not going to get paid. Um, and I quite like that. See, that seems to be the exact opposite from the majority of people <laughs> I've spoken to. Yeah. Like, that's the big bugbear. Yeah. That's the pain. That's the... The frustration or the worry that keeps you awake at night is like, how am I going to pay? The no, bills? It's, it's doesn't. It's, it's never kept me awake at night. Um, what actually kept me awake at night was being in a job that I couldn't escape because I had a pension. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you you know that actually you've got something that's absolutely steady, and you know yes, you've got pension, and you know you wouldn't want to lose your pension. You know, it's it's not it's not a way to live. Um, and I, I guess, in a way, I'm I'm lucky in that, I, you know, because I actually made this decision because I decided I've got to leave before I'm 50, you know, and by the time you're 50, you know, you've kind of, you know, you've paid a bit, you know, you paid a lot of your mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's, that's not as challenging for me as it was for other people or it might be for other somebody else. But that driven thing of actually this business will not run unless we bring in that money is absolutely key you know we took on premises we've got a lot of costs to cover um um we don't pay ourselves a huge amount because we try and keep it in the business um but i love you know i i like to look at the balance sheet and actually think this is you know right we've got to get in this sort of work or this is the sort of work we're going to do but it's also tied into how you value yourself you know you have actually got to um charge something that actually values your work and that's been initially I wasn't sure how to pitch that or how to do it um, I have a school friend who is um, worked in fi- financial services um, for you know like KPMG and PricewaterhouseCooper big companies and does big project management of IT systems is now freelance and when I told her what her daily rate was she just threw her head back and laughed and said I wouldn't send a junior out for that you know, and they're basically teaching people how to use Word, you know, in comparison to what we're doing. So that kind of gave me a bit of a benchmark mm-hmm. that I've actually stuck to. Because I mean, it's really difficult mm-hmm. to price yourself. Yeah. Um, I, people are always asking questions, and it's sort of you can look at national averages and things mm-hmm. like that, but it's it's often very difficult. And I imagine trying to sell service design, mm-hmm. which is a relatively new concept yep. to people who don't necessarily have a grasp of what it yeah. is or the benefits yeah. that it can bring yeah. and then you're putting a price tag yeah. on that yeah. um, that must be quite a difficult process it's not actually been as difficult as I imagined it would be because people can see the value of it um, and that's that's a key thing is about selling the value of it not the cost of it um, it gets a bit tricky if you're working with people who 
if you're working with people and you're working on daily rates or whatever, we tend to just avoid that where we can. Okay. And it's just, here's a job. This is how much it costs. Um, because, you know, yeah, you can unpick stuff. I mean, the day rates you put in for doing stuff never, ever cover the amount of days you spend on things, as you will know yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's just, this is how much this job costs. Um, and this is the value that it will bring. And to date, we've not had anybody coming back and say, I don't think that was worth it. Um, and we have lots and lots of repeat business from clients. So they obviously are seeing the, the value of it. So how do you approach the, the, the selling of the value and illustrating the value that you bring? We tend to use examples of previous work we've done. And a lot of what we are doing, although we badge it as service design, is about helping people think about the future differently and think creatively about the future. Because we're working lots with a lot with public service organisations who are delivering a service as they're trying to do anything. You know, they're trying to keep the wheels on things with, you know, decreasing resources, whether that's money or people, or usually both. But they know they have to change, you know, because the world's changing, people's expectations are changing, people are living longer, they've got um, different ways of doing things digitally, etc. And they're trying to do that while still doing their day job. Um, And the way we work with them offers them ways of thinking that helps them think creatively and positively about how they can do that. And usually relatively simple steps. So, for example, um, clients that we've worked with, when we go back and say, so what difference did that piece of work make? Um, They'll say, it changes how we do everything. Um, Because previously they might have decided that they were going to change how they did something and senior people or middle management people would sit around and come up with a plan of how they were going to change it and then they would rule it out and it wouldn't work or people wouldn't do it or people wouldn't know about it. Whereas now they go to their service users and the people that are are delivering the services and work with them and they have got a much better idea of how things work on the ground and what impact changes will have or, or suggestions of how things might work better. So it becomes a bit of a mantra in these organisations, if somebody comes up with a new policy or a new way of doing things, people say, have you asked anybody about this? Have you talked to any users? Have you talked to people that deliver it? And if the answer is no, then it doesn't go ahead. And that, it makes people's jobs easier because the people that are using, because things are much more likely to stick if they connect with how people do things and their lives. You know, you can design the best service in the world, but if... It involves driving to get there, you know, or it involves, um, you know, logging on only to a computer rather than being able to use a mobile device. It's not going to work. Or if it's delivered at a time of day that people can't make, etc. So it's all those things that actually, and it helps people deliver things that actually work. Yeah, and it, it, it's coming back to the thing of not, you're not designing for yourself. You're not designing in a silo. Yeah. Um, it's you've got to consider the context and yeah. the real world people and application of, of what you're creating. Absolutely. And that goes back to education as well. I mean, when I started teaching um, way back in uh, Sheffield or whatever, the briefs used to quite often be about designing things for yourselves, you know, and so it would all be like, you know, boys with toys designing, you know, skateboards and stuff like that. And you're like, you know, and so it was kind of reinforcing that thing of it's like it's what I like is what's good mm-hmm. rather than actually what other people were. And one of our most, <laughs> it's funny because I still in touch with the, one of the graduates from um, industrial design, um, product, uh, 
think it was industrial design it was called um, who designed the accountancy software that our accountant uses but he was an exceptional student in the and he I mean, I only interacted with him briefly at the time. I'm still in touch with him. He's been up to Dundee since then. But he was designing toilets, and he actually went into an old folks' home and asked if he could design the toilets. Um, sorry, if he could clean the toilets so as he could understand what the problems were of doing that and then design it. And that was just his whole attitude to life. And he's run many successful businesses since then because it was actually, let's just go and see what the real problem is, not just let's make a nice-looking toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's that thing of being able to step outside yourself. So, I mean, before we go on to talk about more about open change, mm-hmm. um, I want to just take a little bit of a step back into the, the sort of realms of, of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, we've, with a bunch of people on the podcast, we've talked about their roots and their different journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of want to get your opinion, having been in educational institutions for, for quite a significant <coughs> yeah. amount of time, yeah. If someone is coming out of, say, high school and um, they're looking to get into the creative industries, mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think that <coughs> that often university is pushed as the the be-all and end-all, the, the, the big option that everyone yeah. should <clears throat> take. Um, but now I think that there are a lot more alternatives, uh, potentially better or more effective routes. Um, so I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on, on what what options you would recommend um, to someone coming out in that sort of situation? I think it, with everything, it depends on the individual. Um, but just having some experience of the world before you go into any sort of next stage training um, helps you appreciate it more and also helps you put it into context. Um, you know, so when you know somebody's explaining to you about how people live or how people behave, you've seen examples of it elsewhere, albeit in a different context. I mean, my first move, as I said, was to go to Edinburgh University to study what I'd been good at at school and what I was good at at school in the massive pool of people who apply to Edinburgh University doing English meant I was pretty much bottom of the pile on that. (laughs) And that's a bit of a shocker as well. And um, so what you thought you were really good at, actually, in comparison to everybody else, um, could kind of knock your confidence a bit. But also, the going straight to university, how things are taught at school is quite different to how it might be taught in a university as well. So you're, you're going to go through a big change there. So there's a lot of choices to make about are you choosing the right course? Is it the right thing? Things have the same name, you know, or similar sorts of names like design, but they're very, very different between school and university and one university or art college and the other. So that takes a bit of research. Um, I'm a firm believer in taking your time and not rushing into it because I think for someone leaving school at 16, 17, 18 and going on to a course which they don't enjoy or doesn't make them thrive is not good for them. It's really not good for their confidence. Um, It's not the best use of their time. It's not the best use of money or resources. Um, But there's a real push. You know, what do you want to do when you leave school? What what are you going to do? Are you going to apply for university? And real pressure to do that, which I think is unfair on a lot of people. Um, sure, you'll have some people who have an absolute driven vocation um, and want to go on and do something as quickly as possible. But I think it's wrong, and I, I actually almost think an inf- you know an enforced gap year would be good for people to actually go and work and go and do something different, um, and then find something that's appropriate for them. 
And art college is interesting in a way in that lots of people um, would go to, say, their local further education college to do, you know, a kind of some sort of course that would take them to art college. And then once they got there, they'd do a kind of diagnostic year to find out what it was that they were actually interested in before they actually specialised. And yeah, that's expensive and it takes a long time, but it's a model that actually is quite interesting. It probably doesn't need to, it's probably quite inefficient and takes quite a long time. But some, that, and we're actually doing some work at the moment with Skills Development Scotland around a construction skills um, qualification in schools where it introduces third year pupils to the construction industry um, and all sorts of different levels um, from trades, you know, like joinery, um, brickies etc plastering but also quantity surveying um, site management architecture etc so those people can see the big picture because going back to people give you advice about what they think about the world it's really common at school that you get pigeonholed by people who actually don't know you who say your destiny in life is to be this and they've decided that you're either at this level or you're at that level and that sticks with people and that's not fair. People have to be allowed to make their own choices. And it's so unlikely that everybody is actually going to reach their peak, you know, in between fifth and sixth year at school and have a vision of what they want to do when, you know, they're still, you know, navigating the world, maturing. They haven't stopped growing. They've got lots of other things going on in their life that are exceptionally more interesting than academic study. And yet you're asking them to make a decision mm-hmm. for the rest of life. And we don't even live in a world where you have to do that anymore. I mean, yeah, if you're a school teacher, you probably did decide um, that you wanted to be a school teacher. And that possibly will be the occupation um, that you will be pensioned all your way through your life with. But for the rest of the world, that's increasingly not the case. And people will move between um, different occupations successfully because they want to grow as people, you know, not because they don't want to stick in jobs it's because you're actually growing and moving between things and yet we still have an educational system that thinks we are popping people out at the end to be manual workers civil service workers teachers doctors etc and the world isn't like that anymore yeah. and i think the, the sort of i mean the world is, is ever changing and the, the the needs and the demands mm. for that are ever changing so I mean, even just looking at how the world will change in the next five, ten years, what kind of skills will be required or what skills are actually going to be less required, things mm-hmm. like, I mean, electric cars are going to come along, yep. therefore less mechanics are going to yep. be needed because there's less parts to be serviced yep. and everything's going to be computer automated. Yep. So then does that mean we should maybe go into coding or things like that? Like, mm-hmm. It's to start to have that sort of foresight to, mm-hmm. to how the world is and what skills the world is going to need in yep. the next five to ten years. Yep. So. Yeah, and the skills that they're going to need, we don't know. We actually don't know. Mm. But the skills to learn and the skills to be adaptable and the skills to be able to work with other people and work with teams and be able to know where to access information um, and how to assimilate and synthesise information, wherever it comes from, will always be um, needed. And uh, But the actual, you know, a set, being able to learn a set of information and you know recall it in an exam doesn't really measure any of that stuff so to to go back to open change Mm -hmm. um, you've obviously worked on like an amazing range of projects and i mean a relatively short space of time that you've been going 
Um, but there's sort of there's one in particular that sort of stood out that I'd like to chat about, and okay. that's um, sort of collaborative one um, called the Death Cafe. Yeah. Um, so how how did that actually come about? I think it was um, Fee Monroe um, had I can't remember how it came about whether I knew about it first or whether we talked about it. Um, Fee is somebody we both know from um, working at the university. I always like to say I knew Fee as a student, but I don't. Well, she was a PhD student, um, but I most know her as um, from working with her. And Fee was keen to run a death cafe. Fee has stage four ovarian cancer. And there's a global movement in death cafes, and she was keen to run one and wanted some support um, just with the organisation of it. So Kate Saunderson, or Kate Donaldson as she now is, um, who'd also worked with Fee and... I decided that we would set one up together. And it's using the principles of the Death Cafe, which I think was started in San Francisco. Um, And it's basically a safe space for people to come together and talk about death. And it's not about advising people. It's not about selling any services. It's just an opportunity to talk about something that as a culture we don't talk very much about. and I've not done a lot of research into why we don't, but I just I know from my own experience, you know, with elderly relatives, um, you know, through my own mum's um, death or whatever, that people just don't talk. We don't have the language. We don't have the things are not set up to talk about it. We don't. I mean, most people will make wills and things as they get older, um, but probably not sitting down and talking to people about it. So it was an opportunity to, to do that and um, to get people together. And we had about 20 people um, came along. Uh, we did it in uh, in Avery, which is a, a local cafe. And it was, it was a, I must admit, I was full of trepidation about it because um, I just didn't know what it would be like um, and whether I would find it um, emotional. Mm-hmm. But actually, it was a very joyful <laughs> experience. And... Uh, it ties into uh, work that I've done with the Children's Hospice in the past when I was at the university and then we're just about hopefully to start doing some more work through Open Change with the Children's Hospice. That people who are close to working with people who are have um, life-limiting conditions or are towards the end of life actually have a very joyful approach to it. Actually realise what life is about, which, you know, we don't... The rest of us are... You know, focusing on the the daily grind and not on the joy of what life is, and actually, when you face things like that head on, it actually changes your aspect. I mean, one of the best weeks I ever spent was at the university. Was when a bunch of students and I stayed at the children's hospice and ran a Dragon's Den day for um, a bunch of young people who came for the week to do it, and it was like Christmas. <laughs> It was great. It was just such a great, amazing week. And that's yet, you know, because that's people who are just in, who are enjoying life and getting on with it and have mechanisms for how you talk about things. And that is actually not something that, you know, well, we all know if you hide something away, it becomes a monster, you know. Um, but actually that way of being able to talk about things makes death part of life. Because mm-hmm. it's an inevitable thing that we're all going to experience at some time or another. Absolutely. Um, and I think we're sort of we have these there's pre-built constructs that mm-hmm. exist around the concept of death that 
we're just expected to go along with and that's just what's happened that's the norm that's happened forever yeah. whether that be the the rooms in which funeral ceremonies are yeah. um, conducted or the way in which coffins look yeah. or the way in which we deal with funeral directors or anything anything around that yeah. whole process and, and the service I suppose yeah. um, is very prescriptive Absolutely. And, and we don't really have much control over that so I think it's it's a really interesting area yeah. um, and it's one of the, the great things that service design can do. It can sort of latch on to these sort of areas that, that have never really been touched by design before and mm-hmm. start to show them the benefits yeah. and, and create a, a better overall service for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting area. I mean, we've not done design. We've, we've done that um, work with the Death Cafe with fee and keep bringing people together to do that but you're abs- but we've not done work on the actual service design of that there's a great woman in glasgow barbara chalmers um who works on that that's really really interesting work that anybody should look up um i think it's final fling i'll put it in the show notes yeah really um interesting work but yes it's true and it's all those things that actually make things easier for people because you know the one time in our lives that we go to you know, the dreary ceremony that is a crematorium is one of the worst moments in your life. And actually, just from a personal point of view, and I do hope none of my family um, mind me talking about this, um, when my mum died, I don't know why I thought of this, but I'd heard of willow caskets, which are kind of woven baskets. I don't know why I'd heard of them. And I'd said to the undertaker, who um, is somebody I know because he's, you know, he was in Kikubri, could we get a willow casket? And he said, oh, we've never done one of those, but I bet I could get one off the internet. And he did. And it was amazing. It made, well, to me, it made a huge difference because instead of this, you know, those really horrible coffins that are kind of the thing of, I don't know, reminds me of Only Fools and Horses or something like that for some reason, I don't know why, you know, just the kind of mahogany thing with brass handles. It's kind of like something tacky. Um, But instead of having that and that and everything that's associated with it, it was a basket in a way, you know, it was a kind of box shaped willow woven thing. And it just softened the whole thing. It seemed like something that was nurturing. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's an object that actually just makes you think differently about it. And actually, if you kind of applied all the different sorts of thinking to all the whole other parts of the, the service and things like that, it would make, and, lo- and people do that. I mean, there's lots of people who are actually beginning to develop their own um, ways of um, doing that and humanist ceremonies and things like that that change it and make it something that's a celebration of somebody's life instead of this kind of dirge um, process that you have to go through to, to move to the other side mm. um, and I don't know and, and, and again that's different in different parts of the world, lots of people do it much much better than we do and I don't think, and we've obviously not always done it in this way either but you just kind of grow into a way and don't change things mm-hmm. um, yeah, we'll have to think of a different way of doing our own ones. And um, I think it's important because it, a funeral is for the people that are left behind mm. and a way of helping them deal with it. And the way we do it at the moment, I don't think really does help people um, express how they feel. Um, I've also been to another um, family friend's funeral, which was a Quaker funeral, which was different in that everybody after the ceremony um, sat, was in a circle, which I think is a Quaker um, meet, normal meeting thing, and people could just stand up and say what they wanted to about the person. And 
I was able, I was there with all my siblings because it was an aunt who'd been a really important part of our family. Um, and I was able to stand up and talk for the family on, you know, why we'd all travelled in different modes of transport from one end of the country down to um, south of England to, to be at this because she was so important. And it was great to be able just to say two minutes, this is how important this person was to us. And anybody could do that. It was amazing. So, it, yeah, you felt a sense of celebration and, and being part of somebody's life. And that's really important. And so, I mean, I noticed on your, your Twitter feed, you um, you posted, it was a, a photograph with a little scribbled note on it, and it was about the number of times you had to phone your GP <laughs> to get through. It was like 28 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, But what I'm wondering, do you come across things in your sort of daily life and then immediately start, in your head trying to work out how to improve that service and solve that problem yes I do I do and my son characterises it as stop trying to tell other people what to do <laughs> and but it is I mean it's it's that thing about noticing you know once you start noticing certain things um, you can't unnotice it you know you've kind of just become and you're thinking actually if that was done this way I mean there's all sorts of things that are part of really big complex systems you know and you kind of think, well, if it was that simple, they would have done it already. But actually, in lots of cases, it is that simple and they just haven't done it already. And it's about mindset. It's about how things change. But it's also about how things are measured as well. So like the GP phone calls, um, it's partly to do with targets in that um, GPs are measured on how many people are seen on the day that they phone up. And so they keep lots of appointments for the same day. And, but, you know, there is a good percentage of people who do not necessarily need to see the doctor the same day, but it's either phone up at eight o'clock um, or it's, you know, three weeks on Thursday. You know, there's kind of not a middle ground mm -hmm. just because of the way the systems fill up and the way it's programmed. But actually, if you went and asked people what they want, you would get, you know, you would find that information out, but actually they're doing it to meet targets rather than to meet what people want. And it's awful. I mean, there's... GP's practices in Dundee roundabout where there are sick people going and queuing outside at 8 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold because that is the only way they can guarantee getting an appointment to see the doctor because they can't, you know, they're not getting through on the redial. And that is, you know, that is a visible problem and yet nobody, you know, is picking that up. Mm. But it seems like, I mean, through the work that you're doing, that you are trying to address yep. and alleviate stress on stress on sort of social situations or anxiety yep. and you have that I mean service thing has that sort of ability yeah I mean it's in a way it's a lot of it's common sense you know it's like okay if there's 20 people queuing up outside the you know the GP surgery every morning Houston we have a problem you know rather than the oh just but that becomes the norm you know and if if that's your norm something is wrong but it's, you know, we can't just continue to accept and say, well, it's because we're understaffed and, you know, we're under-resourced, etc. Things, you know, just looking at things from a different way or trying doing things in a different way and testing it out to see if you can make a difference, you know. But it's, it's that, you know, there's, it's difficult when you've been doing things in the same way for the same time to actually change or to know how to change or to think you have the authority to change. Um, and that's a big thing with people we work with. You know, there's lots of people who are working on the front line who are saying, I don't know why we do it like this, you know, but that's what the bosses say. Um, and they don't feel empowered to change or they 
you know, feel they're going to get into trouble if they change. And so that's what a lot of what we do is working with cross sections of organisations to get them to work together collectively and to empower people to do that, to make the changes that, you know, in a safe way and in a sensible way that make things better. Mm. Not just for the people that they're serving, but for them as people working in those systems. Um, because, you know, you want work to be something that people find joy in as well, because if people find joy in the work they do, they do it creatively and they do it well. So in that same vein um, of change, mm-hmm. uh, what, I mean, Dundee is a city of change mm-hmm. at the moment, um, quite drastically. What would you like to see um, change in Dundee going forward? Um, there's been massive, I mean, yeah, what more can you ask for? Um, it's, it's been amazing. Um yeah, going back to, you know, when I was dying to get in the sleeper and go down to London, I don't want to do that anymore. I've brought up my son here. I love it. Um, it's, I mean, it's, a me, it's an amazing situation. It's got an amazing vibrancy to it. There's lots of stuff to do. Um, to actually connect up some of those things would be great because, I mean, we're well connected in the community. You know, we're connected through Creative Dundee, through other networks. We know what's going on. We use, um, you know, all sorts of different websites and social media, etc., to know what's going on. If you're not from Dundee, that's not so visible. Um, you know, if you are a visitor to Dundee, you could miss an awful lot of actually what's going on because you wouldn't know about it because you're not connected in, you're not in the in crowd, as it were. And also, just other people in Dundee who are not in that crowd don't know how to access it or what bits they might be interested in. So how do you actually spread that? And the V&A, I think, will be... Is, I mean, has been a massively great catalyst for that and can also be part of that solution as well. So how do you make things visible and accessible to people who are not already in um, the know? So is it in the way when you go to visit um, Paris or Barcelona or any other big city, you kind of think, right, OK, these are the sort of things I would do here because otherwise it's going to be, um, you know, the one-trick pony of the V&A. And yet there's lots of things, I mean, I had a fantastic idea, heard Claire Brennan from um, Abertay, the fantastic idea the other day, talking about tours, um, where people were taking on tours of things that were going on in cultural events. So you might be taken from um, a games exhibition that was happening at Abertay through to whatever exhibition's happening at DCA to maybe something that's happening in the V&A to go and visit a jeweller's workshop or, you know, because there's all these things happening but it needs somebody to actually physically connect them up or virtually connect them up. Um, but yeah, if you took that thread of here we have an expert and whether it's a virtual expert taking somebody on a tour or here's a tour to connect. I mean, because so, you could have just such a broad variety of things. You know, if somebody's got you know, six hours in Dundee, right, okay, this is what we're going to do and uh, this is what we're going to do and you'll have a chance to have a look at this and you might see craft beer being brewed and you might get lunch here and you can go and talk to such and such and just a menu of those different sorts of things. But, you know, and to do that really, really well could totally put Dundee on the map. Yeah, I think, I think that's that's a very good point that there is a lot going on and there's not a a centralised place to facilitate Mm. that. Um, And I think... Yeah, whether that's a, a digital or a physical yeah. thing that can do it, um, would make a massive difference. Yeah. And it would keep people here and give yeah. them a reason to stay two yeah. or three days yeah. as opposed to... Yeah, and you don't even need to do... I mean, it could just be one thing, you know, like if you... 
um, going to TripAdvisor for Barcelona or whatever, you know, something will pop up about, you know, you can go and do cocktail mixing somewhere or whatever, you know, at some trendy bar or whatever. But it's that thing where you have an experience as well as just going to see things. Yeah. You know, so it might be, you know, you make a ring or you might be going to brew craft beer or something like that. But it's just, it's another hook and, and an experience because you're actually talking to people and interacting with, you know, people rather than just passively looking at stuff which potentially you know you could do and if you know if you got off the train um from dundee station at the moment or even you know you can either have an absolutely amazing experience or you could have a really shit experience and actually it's up to the city to help guide people towards that amazing experience Mm -hmm. my other bugbear is the water you know we've got one of the most amazing waterfronts um, you know, and lots of that's being developed, etc. There's bits of it that are, you know, better than others. You know, like there's kind of flats and things that are obscuring great views. There's a whole bit of waterfront there that could just be, you know, this really vibrant cafe kind of thing. And uh, I'd really love to see that grow, you know. And, you know, that's part of plans and things like that. Ferries to Perth, you know, using the water would be great, be amazing. Great. Um, so we're just sort of at the hour mark just yep. now. Um, so to finish up, um, could you recommend some things you've seen or read or listened to in the last sort of few months that you've found really interesting or inspiring? Yep. Um, two books I'm reading at the moment, and I'll have to give you the proper titles um, for the reading notes. One's, about, I think it's called Why We Sleep, um, and it's basically the science of sleep and the impact um, sleep has on your cognitive performance, on your weight, um, on all sorts of stuff, and all based on you know clinical evidence. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, and it kind of changes your view of everything, um, even down to things that we are actually either larks or owls, and there's not very much you can do to change that. I mean, I'm quite lucky in that I do like getting up early, and but the world is designed for people that like getting up early. You know, jobs are nine to five. And if you're not, if you're an owl, you're kind of discriminated against. And that's kind of an interesting thing just to think about. Um, and just, you know, as, as that changes also as people are growing, that's kind of useful for me with a teenage son, um, although he's a lark as well, just to think about, you know, the amounts of sleep you need and how that um, affects development. But also how it affects decision making and all that thing about, you know, pulling all-nighters. Don't do it, people. You know, you will produce worse work doing that. Um, the other book I'm reading is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me and it's about how we use our cognitive biases to back up bad decision making and justifying things that we've done wrong. Um, yeah, and just basically how, because it's really, really important in service design to understand that we have biases, you know, we're going and talking to people, um, so that we can try and set them aside as much as we do, and also to do good research, because what this is arguing, well, what, um, I mean, the case is, we will rally information to support what we already think, and this is why we have Trump, and this is why we have Brexit, etc., is because... Um, we just we we go around the world trying to pick up stuff that actually just reinforces our worldview, and so you know people think oh well Trump will do something and uh, that's bound to change all his uh, you know you know pe- people will stop supporting him you know if we hear one more awful thing, 
it, they won't, um, because you know what the, people don't pay attention to those sorts of things. You gather the things that support the view that you have already, um, and we all do that, and we have to be aware of that. Otherwise, we can't change. Um, so I will send you the the details of both of those, and uh, yeah. So it's, it's for me, it's about making sure, like, because I'm working to try and support other people to change, but I have to be really aware that I have to change as well. <laughs> I can't stay the same either. And uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of naturally programmed to try and hold on to certainty. Great. Um, so if anyone does want to find out more about you, um, where do they do that? www.openchange.co.uk um, has details of the kind of work projects and links to LinkedIn and various other things that do. And Twitter. Which is? At Hazel One White or at Open Change UK. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. And that was episode number 52. Uh, thank you to Hazel for coming on. Um, and do go and follow her on Twitter, find out what she's up to. Um, and also follow the podcast on Twitter. And on Instagram, it's at CCC Dundee. Or if you're more of a Facebooky kind of person, it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to say. That's the outro, and that's it for this week. Goodbye.